Hello, I'm Emma Duncan. To discuss what we should be doing about climate change over the next decade, I'm joined in the studio by Dave Frame, the Deputy Director of the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment at the University of Oxford, by Tom Burke, who's the Founding Director of E3G, an Environmental Policy Advisor to Rio Tinto PLC, and a Visiting Professor at Imperial and University Colleges London, and Charlie Cronick, Chief Policy Advisor for Greenpeace. Dave, can you tell us a bit about the uh, Smith School and what your objectives there are? Yeah, our new, um, we're a new school. We only opened the doors in October last year. But we're, what we're trying to do is mainstream climate and environment issues. So I think there's a bit of a concern that you see sometimes when you, when you look at environmental programs around the world that they, they tend to um, produce quite good broad students, but ones who, who end up in a bit of a green ghetto and not necessarily in the mainstream of strategic thinking or policy making. And, um, and what we're trying to do is take uh, excellent environmental scholarship and add that to uh, mainstream degrees. So each of our fellows teaches in a, in a regular department rather than a specifically environmental department. Um, and the aims of the, the institute are to, to do excellent environmental scholarship, but also to uh, inform strategic decision-making in business and academia because I think there's a there's a feeling that there's something of a disconnect sometimes between uh, what goes on in environmental uh, science and um, and strategy. Thanks for that, Tom. Tell us a bit about the perspective that you're coming from. Well, I work a lot with E3G, which is an organisation I helped to found, and in a way, E3G is exactly the kind of outfit we need to do to solve the problem. Because what our particular role as a, in a sense, an environmental NGO, is to bring together government and business and NGOs, other opinion formers, to actually shape the outcomes. So in a sense, our focus is not on changing headlines, not on uh, stirring up trouble, not on deep research into the uh, sort of economics or the science, very much on how do you bring together all of those actors that have to play a part in solving what I think people now recognise pretty widely is one of the most complicated and difficult problems humanity has ever faced. And in particular, I think one of the things that we've tried very much to do is to get climate change and energy policy, because they really go together, they're two sides of the same coin, is to take them out of the green ghetto so that they're not seen simply as an environmental issue, but they're actually seen as an issue that uh, uh, is about the prosperity and security, actually not just of 60 million Britons, but of indeed of six and a half billion people on the planet. So it's to get an understanding of the scale of response that we need and why that is justified as a scale of response. Charlie, where are you coming from on this issue? Well, Greenpeace is a pretty well-known brand, I guess, to, to some people. It's, it's uh, a 30-plus-year-old environment uh, activist movement that was founded on the basis of direct action, which, uh, in contrast to what uh, Tom and Dave have both referred to as, as their core business, is not usually thought to be about deep analysis or, uh, you know, getting outside the Green Ghetto. We, we may even have started the Green Ghetto. I think in the 30 years since uh, the Greenpeace has been going, um, we've, we cover a rather a larger um, patch than that, although a big part of what Greenpeace does is still to cause trouble and is still to kind of cause disruption in the best possible sense, in the, it, at least I hope it's the best possible sense, where continuity uh, and incremental change, although easy on institutions, is, isn't actually very effective when you're facing something of the scale of the challenge of climate change. But having said that, as well as buying up bits of land in, the, you know, in critical places, places for the expansion of, say, the new 
runway at at, the, at, uh, at Heathrow. Um, we're also doing policy work on the role of large-scale renewables or decentralized uh, generation in the in the energy mix. So we we cover an awful lot of bases, uh, not just in the UK, but in around 40 countries around the world. So we are a genuinely global outfit. Well, those are three very good, deep, broad perspectives to have with us today. To set the context a bit, over the past decade, climate change has changed dramatically and hasn't changed at all. Changed in the sense that it has risen up the political agenda radically. Uh, So many people at so many levels of society all around the world are now aware of this as an issue that we need to deal with in a way they really weren't 10 years ago. And yet, in policy terms, not as much has happened as we really need it to. So at the moment, in the UK and all around the world, we're struggling with a whole range of issues. Should we be talking about mitigating climate change or should we be talking about adapting to it or both? And where does the balance lie? Energy provision. How do we satisfy our energy needs and at the same time avoid serious irreversible climate change, aviation policy, how do we deal with the rise in air travel, carbon trading, is that the right way to go or do we need taxes? How do we need to change human behaviour in order to avert serious climate change? And right now, sitting as we are on the day that Barack Obama is being inaugurated as the new president of the United States, the first president of the United States to commit himself seriously to doing something about this. We're at a really exciting moment. Tom, can you talk to us a bit about what you think needs to be done now and in the next few years? I think you're exactly right about the excitement and the optimism that Barack Obama is bringing with him and that sense that you know there are difficult problems Uh, But we can actually do something about them. And of all the problems we have, climate change is the most difficult. People worry, quite understandably, about the recession. But, you know, recessions pass. Climate change is forever. If we destabilise the climate, as we're threatening to do, to the point where it actually won't support the kind of civilization we enjoy today, we can't go back and say, oops, sorry, that was a mistake, let's do something else. Uh, Let's start again. There's no rewind button, as people say, on the climate. Now, what Barack Obama, I think, has really understood is that there is a tremendous uh, linkage between what you've got to do for economic recovery and what you need to do for the climate. And it resolves that dilemma, you said, between economic growth, which needs energy, and a stable climate, which needs not to add more carbon. And so he's leading the charge in taking the world off the... um, uh, dependence on oil. And if the rest of the stimulus packages align with that and pursue that same goal from Europe, from China, from elsewhere in the world, then I think there's a real prospect that we will start with Obama the transition to the low carbon economy, which is what we need to do if we want to have prosperity and security, not just for our children, but even for ourselves. Dave, it may be today this very optimistic day that's uh, affecting Tom, but he's taking he's 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 taking a very hopeful line on this one. Do you see things in the same way that he does? Mostly, I, I think the the thing I, I disagree with at the, at the start of the thing was actually something you said about um, that not much has happened. I, I think one of the one of the things that we have to realise is the scale of the problem is is enormous, and. Uh, Carbon, the the release of fossil carbon is different from all the other environmental problems we've faced before because the range of processes, the number of actors are so 
much more vast than the than in say ozone destruction or sulfate aerosols but i think given the scale of the problem um we need we need to work on on a whole range of fronts and in a whole range of different um ways to come up with sensible solutions and i think there has been a lot of work on on policy thinking and uh and companies have spent a lot of time thinking about beginning to engage with the problem and that's partly because of the um, i Tom and I both mentioned the Green Ghetto, but we, you should also give credit to the NGO community for having raised the um, climate change issue up the agenda. And I think that's forced companies to think about their carbon footprint and um, to think about what, what their influence on carbon is. And there is, I think there's beginning to be some real movement on, on, on those fronts. Um, and given that it's only really... Uh, not even 10 years since the third assessment report of the IPCC really showed some smoking gun evidence for the existence of climate change. I think actually a lot of the global community has moved quite fast to at least engage with the issues. And I think it's important that we continue to um, to develop thinking and to, to, to try and come up with a, with rich perspectives that will enable us to, to grow sustainably rather than strike necessarily just while the iron's hot because it's hot. So I think the thing I'd like to see from Obama is well thought through policy. And I, I think I'm sure he'll have the time time to do that. But I think developing coherent um, strategies around the world and tying in other really important global issues such as trade and development into climate policy is, is really going to be one of the uh, key challenges that his administration is going to face and that the EU will face in the next 10 years. Charlie, given that we have a relentless drumbeat of bad news from the climate scientists and that emissions go on going up faster and faster, uh, do you feel as optimistic as these two others do? I think I look at it slightly differently. I don't think you could you could be an environmentalist for 20 years and not have some innate sense of optimism or you wouldn't keep coming to work. But I actually, I really do disagree with Dave in that I, although I think there's been a lot of, of, of noise around, around climate change last year, and clearly the climate science has advanced you know, beyond all recognition, actually emissions have continued to rise quite dramatically uh, in the United States, you know, on very, very dramatically in China, which isn't surprising, uh, or countries like India. Um, but worryingly, even a progressive market leader like the UK, which was, you know, for many years considered, at least in rhetorical terms, to be at the forefront of international climate diplomacy, most of the gains were made for a series of one-off or structural adjustments to a couple of industrial strategies or power sectors in the 1990s. And since then, every indication has actually gone the wrong way. Uh, and and I would question how serious companies are at the broadest level about climate change if you've got companies like RWE or Eon, big European utilities, which are not just, you know, inclined to, but are actually absolutely intent on building new unabated coal-fired power stations using technologies that are incrementally better than the boilers of the 1930s, but only just leading to what will be absolutely enormous increases in carbon emissions from the power sector, combined with, of course, you know, recent decisions around infrastructure like uh, Runway 3 at Heathrow. So I'm, I'm not optimistic at all about what the government uh, or industry has put on the table so far. I am optimistic about what's possible to achieve. But I think even just today, amongst the four of us discussing it, there's been the idea that unending economic growth, at least on the scale and, and uh, in the pattern that we've been 
experiencing in the last 30, 40 years, the post-war boom, uh, has to be an inevitable outcome. And I think there are going to be, and Greenpeace thinks there are going to have to be some kind of trade-offs, not just in terms of consumption, uh, but in distribution of consumption. And if, if poverty eradication, which Greenpeace takes very seriously in the developing world, is going to happen it's simultaneously with responding to climate change, they're actually are going to have to be some negotiations about who gets what and how much and when. And that has not been a very obvious part of the climate negotiations so far. It's been classic power politics. And in that regard, it's been exactly like the trade negotiations in the WTO. Do you mean you're going to have to make rich people poorer if you're going to make poor people richer? I think that at the very least, rich people are going to have to contemplate getting richer at a much, much slower rate. And I think that if you, you know, you look at some of the work that people like the New Economics Foundation have done is you have to uh, find a much better measurement of, of prosperity than crude GDP. And at the moment, that's not currently even part of the, the conversation. What I would like from you now, if you wouldn't mind, is a fairly clear, brief sense of what in policy terms we need from the Obama administration and then globally in order to tackle this problem seriously? The first thing we need is lots of public spending and we need lots of public spending on the transformational technology change that we need. You're not going to get that from a carbon price. Now, you're not going to get that without a carbon price, but carbon prices will produce change at the margin because of the nature of this problem. We need transformational change. We need change in a specific time. So you're going to have to spend and be prepared to spend a lot of public money. Now, we're going to spend a lot of public money anyway on the recovery packages. So the issue is what do you spend it on, not just how much do you spend, but what do you spend it on? And if we're spending that on energy efficiency, on deploying the renewables and deploying carbon capture and storage, then, as I said earlier, we're getting onto the, at least the beginning of a pathway to a low-carbon economy. If we miss this chance, then I think life is going to get very hard indeed. But even that won't be enough, and we really are going to have to do a lot more regulation. We've, I think, had pretty kind of brutal lesson in the downside of living in a very deregulated world. I think that's just as true for climate change as it is for the economy as a whole. And so there are areas where we really need to do things through regulation much more effectively. You look at the California Climate Action Plan, for instance, which is one of the most advanced and most praised plans, you look at what actually they're doing. They're doing an awful lot of work using things like building standards, appliance standards to drive things forward. Now, I'm very much in the Michael Porter camp of thinking that actually the right kind of regulation deployed in the right way and at the right time drives technological advance and brings with it uh, economic productivity gains. So you, the, one of the things you've really got to avoid doing is making false choices. And the carbon price that you're talking about, how would you get that carbon price and, and how would it work? In, if I could trust governments, then I would get it by a carbon tax because it creates a sort of predictability. But I'm not relying on the price signal to bring about the change. I would then do what we've seen has worked, for instance, with the Swedish NOx tax. I would then hypothecate, though dreadful word that, hypothecate those revenues towards making the technology shifts we need to make. Now, the advantage of that is politically, it's transparent. You have a self-sunsetting tax. As you drive down your carbon emissions, so you need less and less tax to get the next step. And so the public can see that they're not being, as it were, uh, 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 hijacked by stealth taxes. I think that's pretty important. I think trading in some places will have a part to play, and maybe particularly with the power sector, if we can stop 
the power sector sort of double dipping on the revenues on it. But I think trading may have some role to play, but it has very high transactional costs. And the idea that we're going to build a global carbon market anytime soon, even with everybody pulling the same way, which they're not, doesn't really take much account of the kind of thing it's taken to build any kind of global market. It takes a long time. Time is the one resource we don't have with this problem. Dave, would you go with that very heavy public spending, heavier regulation than we have at the moment, and a carbon tax? Mostly. I certainly go with uh, smart regulation, which is what I took Tom to be meaning rather than heavy. Um, And I think there's a hell of a lot of the gains that we're after that are not inspiring and uh, not terribly glamorous, like building insulation, um, things like that, which could well be a part of those sorts of initiatives. Tax versus trading, I'm a bit of an agnostic on that one because... As I understand the economics, it's that um, it, it turns on the marginal benefit of abatement of the of the thing you're trying to get rid of, and uh, that you prefer ta- in the case of carbon, you would prefer taxes in the short term and trading in the long, and that poses all sorts of challenges. But the four things I think I'd I think will be needed are um, a big initiatives on carbon accounting because it be, it becomes very obvious if you try and do carbon if you try and produce a a, a trading system that you need good solid carbon accounting and, and in fact the initial allocations of the EU um, emissions trading system showed what happens when you don't um, but even if you have a tax you're going to want to know what you ought to be paying tax on and I um, I don't think at the moment there are, there's any internationally agreed framework that everybody finds compelling so I think one thing we'll need to get to grips with is finding ways of accounting embedded carbon across a vast range of processes um, and thinking about timescales associated with the climate, we often hear claims that climate is urgent in one sense or another, and there are, there are times when that's that's probably right, and there are times when it's exaggerated. And I think it it often depends on the 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 sort of churn timescale of the industry you're talking about, and things like coal-fired power plants, which are going to be around for sixty odd years. Uh, obviously, if you build one of those today, anywhere in the world, you need to think of the emissions implications under whatever global scheme you're, you're intending to bring in. You need to think about the emission implications in 60 years' time. So quite often, um, although people have space under some sort of emissions uh, plan that they may be advocating today, they, they run out of room quite rapidly um, with that. So, But then there are other, other sectors, like, as I mentioned, um, building insulation, where you could do things quite fast. So I think timescale, unpacking that and bringing that into the policy arena would be really useful. And doing things efficiently... Uh, so as to not be more welfare reducing than they need to be is obviously pretty key because there's so many other things we want to do. And finally, to make equitable policy. It's an easy thing to say, and it's a really hard thing to do because it brings to the the fore all sorts of issues about the framing of the problem. How broad is climate policy? What other policies does it need to be bundled in with? And what other policies does it leave outside its, its realm? And I think that's really easy to answer that naively or to answer it badly. And I think that I'd like to see a lot more of the negotiations being around development, trade, and and a variety of other things as well, such as corruption. Um, because we have this inter, intergovernmental process and uh, where many of the governments aren't necessarily great with public funds, it, it, it runs the risk of eroding political will in the developed world as well as um, uh, being detrimental to the welfare of the people on whose behalf these transfers are being, being uh, initiated. Charlie, any other basis that you want to cover on the policy front? No, I, th- I think that um, I think Dave and Tom have covered pretty much everything that I would that I would have picked up on. I just I think there's something though that, that Dave mentioned I think is really interesting talking about the the political process and and the negotiations that are ongoing. Um, 
the the you know the Copenhagen deadline of, of 2009 for negotiating a successor to the Kyoto Protocol means that uh, the ideas will have an ongoing regime, you know, which be, will begin in 2012 and carry on onwards. But the decisions that are being taken now about new power stations, about new runways, infrastructure that's going to have a very very long lifetime and run the risks of being you know severely stranded assets in economic terms and real white elephants in environmental terms, um, those decisions are being taken almost irrespective of, of that of that political multilateral political process, which for all its flaws is is very attractive because it's it's a multilateral process. And there is this real tension, I think, between you know the sense of urgency which people like you know Greenpeace and others constantly go on about and the sense of the ongoing march of, of, of progress that you know quite reasonably people responsible for the economy have to have to take responsibility for. And that tension I don't see it being resolved in any way or even being publicly explored in current in current decision making. And so it, it just stays there and the whole circus goes on and on and on year on year, you know, you get thousands of people rocking up to these things. You make this tiny progress uh, in, in the sort of incremental negotiations, but these decisions that are going to affect those outcomes beyond 2015, 2020 are, are, are rolling onwards with, with very little input. We really need to find some way, whether it's in policy terms or political terms or even activism terms, to address that tension because without it, we'll have an agreement. It might even be a good agreement, but it won't actually do the thing that we need it to do, which is to avert the worst impacts on the climate. Well, that's the crucial thing, isn't it? How do we bring the discussions together with the reality? And that's what I, I wanted to bring you on to now. We're at a really interesting time for making global policy, which possibly makes making environmental policy between the rich countries and the developing world harder, and possibly it makes it easier. Um, Tom, can you talk about a bit about how do we do greenery in a recession? How... Can we bring these things together? Do they conflict or do they help each other? You have to separate the discussion on the politics of this from the discussion on the policy. And the, one of the reasons for getting out of the green ghetto, indeed the climate ghetto, is to get away from endless discussion of the minutiae yeah. of the policy, because that isn't how we're going to do it. And you need to remember that international treaties consolidate political bargains that have already been made. They're outputs from those bargains, they're not inputs to them. And to some extent, we've got off in the wrong direction on climate change. That doesn't mean the negotiations aren't very important. In a sense, part those, they'll run their course in the way Charlie can, just can, can I just stop you and just talk to me a little bit about that very interesting distinction between the politics and the policy? Policy is the map of how you get from here to there. Politics is the journey. You use different tools to make a map than you do to make the journey. And quite often in making the journey, you're using the instruments, the tools you've got on the other people you want to take along with you. So it's a much more crude and brutal process, which is why I said at the beginning, the key to the politics of this is aligning up the stimulus packages. Because what will actually bring about the technology transformation that we need is not detailed agreements about emissions and sharing of burden and all that stuff, which will go on forever. What will bring it about is the kind of public spending I've talked about on the scale I've talked about. And if that's done essentially by the EU, by China and by the US, then the rest of the world will follow. Now, that's a political process. It's not a policy process. The countries don't need to agree their precise measures and so on. They don't even need to agree to go together, but they have to agree to point in the same direction and to align the scale of ambition that they, they've got for that. Now, that's not instead of the negotiations, but if you don't do that, then the negotiations get bogged down in this sort of swamp of minutiae because there isn't enough political space and political momentum to force people to agree. If you start 
creating the alternative you want to see, then people follow that. And that's why I was opti- I'm optimistic about Obama, just in a resurgence of hope, not because I think our prospects have got, are yet all that much better, but at least it seems to me he understands the importance of creating a sort of political impulse on the right scale for this. And he explicitly links what we have to do on economic recovery and what we have to do on energy and climate. OK, I can see that. But isn't this a pretty dreadful time to ask any government uh, to start spending large amounts of new money on anything? I mean, we're pouring vast quantities of taxpayers' money down a black hole called the banking system at the moment. Dave, do you think one can reconcile these two rather difficult aims? Well, I think on the on the policy versus politics side, the thing I worry about there is uh, what are the arguments people deploy for cap-and-trade systems as opposed to tax? Is, is you build a constituency around the policy and, and therefore you have a bunch of people whose vested interests lie in the maintenance of the policy and the argument against tax is, well, they won't be there long. And uh, it's interesting to see Exxon come out in favour of tax, presumably on the grounds that um, everybody likes repealing taxes. But um, but I think there is a danger, and, and the, the same danger occurs with creating communities who are recipients of large-scale public uh, funds, and and that's if you create political inertia behind a a policy process that you haven't thought through properly, that you subsequently decide you you really aren't that keen on, um, it's much harder to unpick. And I think, so I think, um, I I agree. Do Do you have any examples of that? If you tried to unpick something like the European the uh, emissions trading system, um, I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad policy, but if you wanted to do something like that, it would be pretty hard. A better example is probably the common agricultural policy, actually. Personally, I think undermines a lot of European claims to moral leadership in the environmental arena. But if you try and unpick something like that, you find that the reasonably small number of people who have a massive vested interest in it end up making sure, but they have a very strong vested interest in it, they make sure that the thing continues to exist. So you you lose the ability to revise policy if you decouple too much the politics from the policy And Tom, could one not also cite the American biofuel subsidy as an example of this? You have huge government spending, gets poured into the pockets of farmers, it gets sold on a green basis, turns out to be a really bad, not at all green, incredibly expensive policy. And does that not end up somewhat discrediting the whole uh, tackling climate change cause? Uh, Possibly. I mean, you just remember that the... um Corn subsidies for ethanol production were being sold long before people were as anxious as they are now about ethanol and had lots to do with Tom Daschle getting votes in Dakota. So I I think you want to be careful. But there are going to be mistakes. Don't kid yourself that making the kind of transformation we're talking about we need to do and we need to really get going in the next three or four years, making that kind of transformation is not going to be mistake-free at all. But partly why I said the way we should do the tax is linking the tax to the emissions so that as the emissions go down then the tax yield goes down precisely to get out of the kind of trap that the CAP can produce for you so there are ways to work your way around that but right now I don't think there is a serious political impulse to deal with this problem I think that what was being said earlier on by Charlie and Dave about the the sense of the slowness of the process is right so sitting around arguing about what's the best way to 
pay for Spitfires or Hurricanes in September 1938 is, you know, maybe entertaining, but it's probably not going to help you very much. And I don't mind if in the process of trying to get the Spitfires and Hurricanes, we build three or four other planes that don't work uh, because we're in that kind of state. See, I, I don't agree that we're in that kind of state. I don't think that the sense of urgency is like that of a war. And I think that the risk of analogy, uh, making an analogy between a war and climate change is that one in a war, people are prepared to go undergo hardship because that they know exactly what it would be like to win. They, they understand there is a, there's a finitude to it. They know what the victory conditions are. They know it's temporary and they, they, they can see the, um, the end game. Um, and I don't think those like things... war on terror. Um, actually, I think I think a war on carbon would be just a lot like a war on terror, a war on drugs. I, I think a war metaphor doesn't help us very much here, but a wartime footing might. And I think the idea that there's a that the urgency isn't there yeah. uh, is is a. I think it's not. I mean, if you look at the recent science, I think the science says it all. But I think even if you don't look at it in scientific terms, look at it in infrastructure investment terms, there is going to be hundreds of millions of euros spent on uh, electricity, power sector infrastructure, regardless of whether you believe climate change was happening or not. The chance we've got right now, combined with the economic downturn, is that we do that 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 infrastructure can be guided in. Tom's terms in the right direction of travel. Of course, there are going to be mistakes in, you know, certain technologies aren't going to deliver as much as they should, or the implementation of certain technologies. You only have to look at the growth of wind and then the crash of wind in California in the 70s. And there was one simple reason. It was an investment tax credit, not a production tax credit. So you could make money by building wind farms. You didn't have to generate any electricity from them. Simple policy interventions can make actually a big difference and you can make adjustments to make sure they deliver the right outcomes. But if you go back to corn ethanol, I mean, it was never about climate change. It was always about fuel security in the United States. And I think a lack of honesty... Always about votes. And, and vo- votes combined with the, the rhetoric yes. of, of, of independence from Middle East oil. I grew up in the, in the Great Plains I, and I know, about, I know about what we used to call pork barrel politics. And it is, it's very, very powerful in the United States. But you can turn pork barrel politics into a reasonable outcome if what you're clearly identifying is the right outcome. And I think there was a real, you know, there was, it was just downright dishonesty uh, in, in the biofuel boom doggle, I'm afraid. Okay. What, Charlie, is your sense of what to me is probably the crucial question over the next couple of years, which is in America, how do the forces for tackling climate change play against the forces resisting the urge to tackle it and you know who are they on both sides and how do you feel that game's going to play well, out? Well it's, it's really interesting and it's, it's incredibly fluid at the moment you know one of the most successful uh, oil men in, in the late 20th century is a guy called T. Boone Pickens who is an absolutely compelling and persuasive advocate for a renewable economy for moving, you know, for moving away from oil for electric powered vehicles massive investment in onshore wind, you know, on the Great Plains, the kind of thing that even four or five years ago would have been, cons- and a Texas oil man, would have been considered unthinkable. I think bizarrely, wonderfully, ironically, you know, the, the California Climate Action Plan and, and Schwarzenegger's leadership has been extraordinary. You know, the combination of, of output efficiency standards for power stations, low carbon fuel standards, which means that the, the oil derived from the Canadian tar sands will never be sold in the lower 48, uh, you know, the continental United States. They are really exciting and quite remarkable transformations in a short period of time. But they've got to deal with the coal states. And so there is this massive... 
massive counterweight uh, to, you know, the progressive policies in, you know, mountaintop mining and old-fashioned extractive industries. And those tensions are playing out in quite a different way than I would have expected a couple of years ago, but they're very real. And although there might be differences of opinion around the table for the potential for carbon capture, I think it's a real thing. I just don't think it's going to be a real thing in the time frame we've got conveniently available to us. So what is that time frame? Because I think this is another point of disagreement. Well, it depends on who you ask. I mean, when you, Eon, we're pretty clear that, you know, the big European utilities have been pretty clear. They don't see it happening at any kind of industrial scale, uh, utility scale before mid-2020s, maybe 2030. That's, that's not soon enough, which then brings that conflict between the coal states and California, to put it crudely, in sharp focus. Charlie, Tom, Dave, I think you're all, I'm happy to say, a little more optimistic than I expected Thanks very much. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.